Okay, there's uh, two possibilities. Um, Either you ask as clever, intelligent, and fruitful questions, or else I give a long, boring, <laughs> brutally complicated talk on some arcane topic of Buddhist philosophy. You have 30 seconds. <laughs> It looks like you're asking for it. <laughs> so everything seems abundantly clear by the looks of it. Don't complain then. Good, I'm going to say something about... Is this a question? Yes. Ah, <laughs> good. I'm listening. Um, could you say something about um, taking back negative projections, how to do that skillfully? Taking back yeah. negative... Help me! Well, I was noticing that this afternoon, for no particular reason, I suddenly became very logical with a huge amount of negativity and kind of hatefulness. Out of the blue, it felt like it just came... Um, and so I walked around a bit for a while and tried to sit with it. Um, and so then I, I realised that what I was putting out was really inside, it was mine. Um, but I don't want to have it either. Um, so if you could say something about not splattering the rest of the world with it, but at the same time not, not, not swallowing it. Well, the easy answer is have it yourself, own it. Uh, that's the most effective way. It's not flattering. But, you know, this negativity you describe arises in the mind. It latches then onto things you perceive to be out there. But still, the arising of the negativity is here. And once you acknowledge ownership for this, it's still unpleasant, but you can actually start to treat it at the place where it grows. Yeah. So the, I think the, the quick answer is you, you have to acknowledge that the place of origin is here. And that is probably where it needs to be met. Now... You know, psychologists tell us there is such a thing called projective identification. That means the things we can't handle acknowledging here, we throw out. Yeah? We then find other people out there who hold that for us or who represent that for us. We, we end up blaming them. And if all goes well, you know, after a while, after having blamed a while, 30 seconds or 30 years, we, we begin to acknowledge that in fact what we have said is out there and doesn't belong to us and is totally different from what we are like, that in fact we do resemble it after a while. We begin to acknowledge that because we have had it out there at some safe distance, apparently disconnected from us, 
And once we have learned that this is not the truth, yeah, and sometimes uh, outsourcing it helps. Uh, yeah. It gives immediate relief here because I'm not, I'm not like that. You know, I'm a good person. You are the nasty person. You know? um, and after a while, it becomes possible to see that this is not quite true. That some of the nastiness I seem to see out there is actually already happening here. Yeah? And um, I begin to grow and acknowledge more and more of my responsibility in this experience. At the beginning, it seemed somebody else is completely responsible for this experience and I'm perfectly innocent. And in the process, uh, if all goes well with that project of, of outsourcing responsibility, I grow up and become more mature and begin to acknowledge that I too carry some of this which I blame the world or other people for. Unfortunately, there can be quite a lag between the blaming and the gradual ownership of this. If you have a choice, like you just described, where you describe the situation, makes me aware that you have a choice, uh, just own it, take it home, make it yours. Look at these guys and say, these are all bodhisattvas. They've just appeared here to teach me something about my mind. They're perfectly pure beings. Their sole purpose here is teaching me something about my mind. Yeah. Obviously, I am ready in my practice to face the stark truth about negativity in my own mind. And these wonderful people help me come to terms with this. And then you acknowledge and you realize that some of that negativity is not actually as solid as it feels or looks. Once you have acknowledged it, it is like painting, you know, demons that beset your heart. You paint them on the walls of your cave. And once they're out there, you know where they are. You can give them a name. And somehow they seem to have less power because you have named them, you have exteriorized them. They seem to not beset you any longer or haunt you. But the same is with this negativity. You can try to localize it in the body. And say, okay, this is a, a negative mood. Now, where do I feel that in the body? When I do my Satipatthana number on negativity. Uh, let's see, where is the body part of this negativity? And you will come to some bodily sensation. You know, a tightness, a constriction, something labored in your breath. You know, it seems to be sitting in your neck or in your chest. It's uncomfortable, but it's something you, that doesn't kill you. It's something that even allows you to be mindful of. And somehow you have found a way into that negativity. It's no longer a, an ogre. It is a state. A state that has conditions. A state that will not last. A state that when you take away its fuel will change. It's not just the sweet things in life that are impermanent. It's also the nasty things that are impermanent. And you will find a place in yourself to forgive yourself that you feel that way. It's important that you don't create 
a negative self out of this experience. Before you had a positive self, and all this negativity was with the other people. That's the kind of that's the outsourcing pattern. And then meditators sometimes they overdo it. They say, "Oh yes, God, all this negativity I bring into this world, I'm really polluting here." And then they create a self out of this, so that they become terribly negative selves. So the meditators after three days of the course go around and thinking they're the worst possible creatures that have ever inhabited this planet. This is overdoing it. This is not taking responsibility. This is identifying with bad stuff, which is a little worse than identifying with good stuff. If you have to identify with stuff, don't identify. Think of yourself as God's gift on the world, something like that. (laughs) Think of yourself as a Buddha in the making, something like that. If you want to identify, identify with things like that. But once you've, you know, it's it's very hard work to remain perpetually negative. It takes a lot of energy. It doesn't give you a good feeling. So, once you've actually acknowledged this, it's very likely that the pain aspect of negativity will become very poignant for you, and you will be highly motivated not to feed it. Yeah. Once you realize it's fluctuating, you're no longer helpless. You're no longer a complete victim to it. Even it may not have gone completely away, you know it's not going to last. I have some influence in what's happening here. If I don't feed it, it gets weaker. That's very empowering, because mostly we suffer not from the negativity, but we suffer from the helplessness, we suffer from victimization, we suffer from the experience of not having any power in making a dent. If you breathe into it, it is likely to decrease. If you manage to stay with the somatic aspect of negativity, rather than feed the emotion by going into the story, thinking of yourself when you were negative towards other people in other places, thinking about other people who made you negative, you know, rummaging through the, through the drawers of, of your history. You know. That's what we do when we're in a particular emotional state. If we're sad, we think of thousand moments in my life where, you, where we have been sad. Yeah? We want to listen to sad music, you know, <clears throat> where we just want to see sunsets. And, you know, it has to be in minor key all. And, you know, we, we, our lives are a string of heartbreaks and failures and losses and deprivations. You know? Because when you're sad, this is what you remember. You know, your whole memory operates from a vantage point of sadness. So all the sad things come to mind. When you're angry, all the angry things come to mind. When you're in love, you know, your life is just a bowl of cherries. <laughs> all the happy things come to mind. You know, you're very grateful and it's lovely and you're expansive. So living at the place of emotion is a risky business because our memory operates along the lines of that emotion. And as you know, emotions are always, uh, how to say, screen-filling. Yeah? When you're in it, it feels eternal. Anger is absolutely timeless. Sadness is timeless. Once you're in it with both feet, you know you can be three years old or you can be 30 years old or you can be 90 years old. This emotion has an incredibly convincing intensity. If you manage to get enough perspective to 
find a body part of this emotion, you have a much better chance to acknowledge conditionality, to acknowledge your own power, to influence it, and it will not be fed. Yeah? It's very difficult to stay angry or sad or negative if you don't feed it. And the way it is fed is by thought, by fantasy and by memory. If you stay with the body, it is a safe place to feel an uncomfortable sensation that does not feed the emotion you're experiencing. Yeah. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Yes, please. Um, I'm getting slightly pulled towards thinking about the future. But in a, when I return to my real life, you know, after retreats, because retreats can't last forever, as they can. Um, I've realised I'm very, very desire-orientated. So, I do always think, plan in my head about the next thing that I'm looking forward to. And I was wondering, how do you, how do you decide to do something good and wholesome that will be very pleasurable, and then not, not sort of get caught up in looking forward to it so much that you have replayed it in your head so many times that by the time you get there you've got a dozen different expectations and it's already a bit jaded. How do you plan as a Buddhist? <laughs> well, I think you're, you've, you've started, you know, you, you're contemplating the nature of how you anticipate and how anticipation actually is detrimental to your very goal, namely sensory gratification. Let us assume that sensory gratification was the highest of all goals, then you're actually doing a bad job at it, isn't it? So, how could you maximize sensory gratification if what you just described minimizes it or makes it jaded before it has even taken place? I think you used the word rehearse. That might be a key word. Our minds are looking forward. Uh, there's something you can't really resent the fact that you're looking forward to forms of that gratification is meaningful. Mm. I, I do that. I'm a strategic optimist. I, I, I have to, as a therapist and a teacher, I have to believe that people grow, that they can learn, that they're intrinsically capable of waking up, that what I try to appeal in human beings is healthy, yeah. and um, that they make the best of whatever, even, you know, they would have deserved sitting here with Buddha rather than with little Akinshino, you know, and they, they're just going to make the best of their situation. Yeah. So, 
that enables me to pipe up and speak because I can trust in that. And I think you'd have to probably accept that it is meaningful to you to engage with the world in the hope that some reward will come. The more conscious you make that process, the more likely it is you find out that some of those expectations are highly overrated. Yeah. You, you have expectations that are just unrealistic, that the things, even if you get those things, do not deliver to the degree you have harbored expectations for. The other thing is to acknowledge qualities that fuel your actions. Some of them may be more or less wholesome. Yeah. And the more conscious they are, the more likely it is that they will be implemented. The more conscious they are, the more likely it is that some of their goodness, the result, they result in goodness, some of that goodness is, is sustainable. Now, the mind rehearsing things or anticipating things can only do so on the basis of experience. In fact, not really straight experience, but conceptualized experience. Yeah? In other words, perceptions and concepts that are formed on the basis of conceptions, and then these are kind of prolonged somewhere into the future. Yeah? And I, this neat little character called I, that is conveniently so vaguely defined that it can almost live anywhere, yeah? this I is going to move along on a, on a, on a scale of time and is gradually going to earn the fruits of my efforts now. This is a lot of fiction in there. It's a lot of um, planning. As you know, you have lived long enough to know that some of the plans you have had, maybe very well rehearsed, have not turned out to become true. Or even if they became true, they became true in very different ways. Or you were different than you thought you would be. Or things didn't mean any more to you what you expected they would mean when you thought about it three years ago or two weeks before. You know? So you know that you cannot actually plan how you are going to be. You cannot really plan what this is going to mean to you when you get it, if you get it. You know? So you know there's a great degree of hypothesis in that notion. I do something to be somebody, to get something, to feel in a certain way. Now, my experience is that we're not actually interested in things. Nobody wants a car. We're interested in a feeling. Basically, we want a feeling. We want a feeling of mobility. We want a feeling of um, the power to go someplace and take along a sandwich and two friends. We want um, to have something that is, you know, we, we consider appropriate to our status and stature, stature in life, you know. Um, nobody wants one and a half tons of metal that rust costs money and you look parking spaces for. Nobody wants that. We want a function and we want a f 
more precisely, we want the feeling that thing gives us. Now, we begin to identify the feeling of independence, freedom, prestige with the thing. Yeah. But that thing doesn't always yield us that feeling. Yeah. If you're in a traffic jam somewhere in the M25, it doesn't give you that feeling. Yeah. It gives you a very different feeling. Or if you're looking for a parking space in my hometown. Yeah. This is a very... So we keep being let down by those plans. We harbor, you know, we work hard, we get one of these, we go there, we learn that, we get certified. <laughs> so we work for this stuff, and then it doesn't deliver what we secretly expected it would give us more or less permanently as a feeling. So we learn, the more conscious your intentions and your efforts are, the more clear you become about the gap that exists between what I plan it to be like and what I actually get. We also notice things that were not planned can be beautifully rewarding, you know. You just run, you get stressed out, and then you miss your plane, yeah. And, you know, disaster struck. You, you're not there. The meeting, the conference, the meditation course, you're not there. You're not turning up because you missed your plane. You know, after five minutes, you've realized this plane is gone. Whatever you do, this is gone. You're not going to get it. Suddenly you come out and you think, oh God, I've got a free day. After <laughs> 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 disaster, heart palpitation, running, stress level. <laughs> you know, <laughs> and then you've, something in you has let go. You realize this is gone. You know, this one is blown. And you come out, the sun shines, you realize, oh, it's, it's time for a, for a lot to know. <laughs> Look, I wouldn't have had time for this. And then I think what I'm going to do until my next plane goes or so. Yeah. So we, we feel suddenly we were given a few hours of our life back because we haven't managed to take off the relevant part in our diary right now. We were, we've fallen out of schedule, so, which was frightening us, but, but now we suddenly feel freed. You know, this isn't planned. So I just acknowledged the, the nature of the mind to plan. What do you get by planning? What do you think? I get safety from planning. <coughs> yeah. I, I get predictability from planning. I get some idea, I know what's coming and I'm in charge of it. I get some degree of empowerment saying, okay, um, here I am, you know, the next thing is this, and then this, and then this, this is the sequence. And I feel more prepared when I plan. Sometimes that works out, and sometimes that doesn't work out. Many things in your, in your diary are probably... Uh, there are many things in your life happening that are not in your diary. Yeah. So, the majority of my plans are in some way fictitious. You know, they're hinging on premises that are not actually very accurate. Just a little 
a little fever may, may completely throw my plants or, or some Icelandic volcano that spits cl- clouds, of, clouds of soot up in the sky and blocks air traffic or uh, a friend that is sick and I have to attend rather than live, live out my plans. You know? So many things are not in my diary plan. So my plans are very, um, at best, very lopsided. But I do the planning because it makes me feel safe. It makes, gives me the feeling I'm in charge of my life. I can make agreements with other people who feel safe when I tell them, yes, I come. We agree on a date and I tell them which train I'm on or so. So I do the planning, although I know it's not really going to work out that way ultimately, because it gives me some emotional security. I guess for many of you, this is certainly true for me, that the, the, the stuff I handle least well is unpredictability. You know? It's not knowing. It's not have control because it's uncertain. So much about our strategizing, gaining competence, making rules, uh, getting power, getting time management, acquiring skills, uh, setting boundaries, coming to agreements is about gaining certainty. Something we ultimately don't have. I don't have certainty about love or health, what governments do. You know, many things I clearly depend on, my, my happiness depends on, is things I have no control over. Um, I can have a semblance of say, and I can learn some tricks, you know, but ultimately the, the major things in my life I I, I sense my happiness mostly depends on, I have no real direct control over. And still I do plan. It's good to question yourself why you plan, for what purpose. And it's, quest- it's good to find out how, how you can be happy despite your plans not being fulfilled. And you also you notice that Anticipating things in the mind, rehearsing, depreciates them in some way. It takes some of their freshness away. It takes some of your availability away. It makes you prone to worry and control. Both of them are things which are highly detrimental to the capacity to be joyous and experience participation in a deep sort of way. Doing what you just do, inquire is a good way. Learning to become more aware of what's happening in the mind, how you hold sensuality, how you hold (coughs) fear, how you hold goal-setting. This is is very useful. And bringing some meditative stillness and clarity to this is useful. I hope this is an answer. Yeah. Yeah, please. That's you, yeah. Look, uh, although I do say I'm a Buddhist, I, I hate speaking from a kind of Buddhist point of view. You know? I'm not an expert on Buddhism. I, 
there's so many, there's about 400 million different Buddhists, and these guys are really starkly different, you know. Some of them are doing things I strongly disagree with, and I don't want to be standing here for a Buddhist point of view. Um, I believe in honesty. I give trust when I sense people are honest with me. That enables me to trust, and I like to be able to trust. That is important to me. I value a trusting environment. I believe this makes me uh, safe, this makes growth possible, it makes forgiveness possible, it makes intimacy possible. So, I I personally profoundly appreciate if people are honest and communicate what they feel so that I feel the congruence of what they behave like and what they look like and what they feel. If I see there is congruence, or congruency maybe, I'm not sure, then this gives me a better chance to trust. If you tell me you're not angry and I know that you are angry because you look angry and you feel angry and your eyes look angry, then I find it difficult to trust you. I am thinking, well, does she not know that she is angry? This is quite um, unsettling. Or does she know very well that she is angry but she doesn't want to tell me or she feels that I'm not trustworthy enough to tell me what she feels, <coughs> something like that. Yeah? It becomes more difficult. So, I, I do think it makes sense to communicate what we feel. Uh, I also do think that uh, there is a time and place for this. And, uh, you know, the degree of intensity and depth of such sharing needs to be calibrated with <laughs> who you meet. Um, if we want to take an example from the Buddha, then he was... He was um, he was said to communicate things that are true and helpful. Um, things that are not true, he was uh, not helpful, he was not communicating. And of the things that were true, he would not necessarily communicate them if they were not helpful. So there has to be some calibration how much my interlocutor can handle is available, is mature enough to understand, is interested in holding from my world. Yeah. Does that speak to your question? Yes, thank you. Um, I'm pretty convinced that the condition that makes us most human is something called empathy, you know, what Buddhists call Brahma-viharas. It's four different tones of universal empathy. This is, um, I also believe this is the stuff which... Um, has made us successful on this planet. If, uh, if you think we're a success just by having propagated ourselves to the degree we have and having um, built things and flown to the moon and learned a few tricks, uh, that is directly due to our capacity to empathize with each other. It has uh, directly stimulated uh, cerebral growth, for example. And it has allowed us to team up. We learn being humans through other humans. We learn many important things only from others, with others, through others.
some things we, we do ourselves without learning. You know, we have instincts. But many, many key things we don't learn on our own. Mindfulness is something we need other people to learn it. We need it modeled from other people. We need mindful people for us to be able to see, recognize and start to embody mindfulness. We need other people to help us when we make our first steps in being mindful. And we need other people to hone and deepen our mindfulness skills. For all dimensions of learning, we need other people. Mindfulness, sati, like speech and like empathy, is something we can only learn from others and through others in their presence. You can't become empathetic on your own. As little as you will learn to speak on your own. Yeah. You need people who speak to you. You need people to help you when you learn a language. And you need people <coughs> to, who keep speaking to you to become proficient in it. That skill. Yeah. So I believe truthful communication with others and self-revealing uh, relationships is the basis of empathy. It's taking an interest in what's going on on the inside of other people and being willing to be seen with what's going on in your inside by others. Okay. That's a bit abstract, but I think you, you get my gist. Okay. Yeah, please. Um, you were saying the other day something about... Um, the next one is for you. How if you have uh, unwholesome thoughts, you can try to turn them into a wholesome thought. I was wondering if you could say anything more about that, perhaps in particular in uh, regards to things like craving. Yeah. I believe I have started saying a few things about this. Yeah. So generally craving, if it's for people, or if it's for things, or if it's for states. Yeah. There's three types of craving. Let's just get those out, because they, they're not obvious. The first one is a craving for experience. Anything you can see, hear, taste, touch swallow, own, sit on, travel to, you know, that would be craving for sensory experience. The second type of craving is less obvious. It's craving for abstract things. It's, they're not sensory. It's craving for things like love or recognition or power or control or safety. You know? These are abstract quality. And they're quite powerful insofar as we do a lot of effort goes into acquiring these. That's the second type of craving. And the third type of craving is a, it goes completely off the map of the Western psychological notion of craving. It's a craving for things to stop, for things to disappear, for things to end, for things to be gone. Yeah, that's the third type of craving it's literally means the craving for unbecoming. So it's the wish that something was gone. That's not just aversion. If aversion is non-specific, you know, when you're reversed and after you have a certain degree of aversion, this is not actually topical anymore. It, it catches on. You know, even if a friend comes in, if you're reversed, your friend will get the bad news, <coughs> even though your friend isn't the cause for your bad news. <coughs> Here we're speaking of a craving that something specific be gone, be you be rid of. So it's a strong will, volitional impulse to terminate something. These are forms of craving. 
And now these forms of craving, they can be focused on people, they can be focused on things, they can be focused on states. Your technique of finding a countermeasure depends which sort you're dealing with. Yeah. When you're dealing with craving for possession, then you would start to consider the negative aspects of possession. How heavy this is, how much maintenance it uses, uh, how you would invoke the jealousy of other people, how you need to protect it, how you need to ensure it, uh, that it would rust, or that you would need to pay bills for it. You would consider how hard you'd have to work for it. You need to consider how many of those you already have and they, they haven't made you happy. If you add another Rolls-Royce to your Rolls-Royce collection, so you think, you know, I've got already four of them and they, they still leave me unsatisfied. Will the fifth one make me more happy? You know, what are the chances, quite statistically, that it will? If the craving is for people, you know, if it is desire, if, if you find yourself attracted in, you know, and you find this is a type of attraction that gives rise to unwholesome thoughts. It's quite okay to be attracted to people, just to be clear. You know? uh, if you don't meditate, it's fairly, it's nice to be attracted to people. If they share your attraction or if they appreciate it, you finding them attractive can be quite nice. If you're in a meditative situation, let's not make this moral. You know? Let's make clear, if you want to meditate and you keep being assailed by thoughts of desire, focusing on attractive people present or attractive people in your fantasy, then you need to do something about it because it takes away a lot of energy. So one of the things is you can focus on something that is not attractive. I believe I have said a little bit about this. You, attraction is a perception. and Perception hinge on a lot of editing, yeah. a lot of airbrushing, yeah. a lot of photoshopping. Yeah. <laughs> Human beings are not intrinsically attractive. There is such a thing as beauty in my books, but human beings are not intrinsically attractive. You need to do a lot of editing for them to keep staying attractive. And if you look a little closer, or if you look onto other parts, suddenly they seem to be a lot less attractive. They just seem to be normal. Also, it's only certain parts you find attractive. Yeah, you rarely fall in love with a pair of kidneys or something. <laughs> you find what you, in English you say so, so clearly. You know, you, you beauty is skin deep. Yeah. Buddhists are quite so Buddhist. It's kind of hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, and skin. That's what we fall for. You could add a few things. People can have gracious movements, or they can have a spiritual aura. <laughs> you can fall for a few other things. You could enlarge the list of it, but it'll be highly specific what you are attracted to. And that attraction will have a lot to do with your fantasy, and maybe with your, you know, hormonal availability. Yeah. Um, it's like. You know, forgive me for being crude, but, you know, a plate of spaghetti will look a lot more attractive if you're hungry than if you're not. You know, if you've just eaten two of those, they somehow don't do the same thing anymore. So, much of what you deem to be the intrinsic beauty or attractiveness of something out there has actually a lot to do with degrees of longing, uh, 
degrees of boredom, degrees of your need, yeah. rather than it being beautiful. Now your mind will not say so. Your mind will say, I'm not needy, I'm not bored, I'm not desirous. This is just, you know, perfect. Or this is just so alluring. Or, So once you know this, and you know that this attractiveness focuses on a perceptual process, you can fiddle with that perceptual process just a little bit, shift the emphasis, go a little closer, or go a bit further, or uh, look at it in a different context. And suddenly, uh, this attractive person doesn't appear so attractive anymore. At 50 meters distance, it's not very attractive anymore. It's just another body moving through the landscape. So you play with your perceptual mind. There's other things you can do. Traditional ways would be you'd try to restrain sensory input. In other words, you do not feed what gives rise to that attraction. You try to abstain, say, from eye contact. Or you clarify your intentions, what you're actually trying to do here. You make yourself aware that this is counter to your intentions, what you're doing when you're feeding attraction. Does that make sense? So uh, sometimes there are practices which focus specifically on unattractive aspects. So you may contemplate somebody as on on a sort of orthopedic level. You may think that this person contains a skeleton. You may have a look at the skeleton over there in the walking room and think, well, there's one in there in my attractive person. (laughs) One of those. Not just the attractive person. There's one of there in here, you know. know, What is attractive in this? How attractive is somebody's orthopedic structure? And that juxtaposes, it doesn't take away the attractiveness, but it may (coughs) alter your relationship to the parts of the person that are attractive to other parts, which you do not feel the spontaneous attractiveness. Sometimes it's a matter of discipline. You just make clear to yourself, I'm not going to feed desire. So I'm not going to look, I'm not going to talk, I'm not going to feed into this. The same, by the way, holds exactly the same, holds true for aversion. You do not look, you do not feed it, you do not get fascinated how ugly somebody can be, or how nasty they can behave, or how gross their eating habits are, or something like that. You don't feed it. Once you notice your mind is primed for this type of uh, energy, you do not try to feed it. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. I think that would be the start anyway. Yeah. What about this for um, uh, craving experience? So, like, especially if you have some fantasies. Of, you know, yeah. You see, I guess it's, in, it's, it's meaningful to look what is the feeling you are looking for that you identify with this experience. I think of Tibet, because I think in Tibet you can meditate a lot better. You know, the air is more clear and long centuries of monastic practice have helped to purify the aura up there. So, I need to go and meditate. I can't meditate in Devon. It's just... (laughs) I need to get... You know, high altitude is so good. 
every realized llama basically has his realization above 4,000 meters. <laughs> There's no way I can get anywhere here in Devon. It's just, you know. So you think that Tibet or the mountains or 4,000 meters above sea level will do the job, will give you fulfillment or will give you better chances or get in touch with the feeling you seek behind the experience. Experiences are things we peg on expectations and the expectations will be you will seek some form of state. Fulfillment, intensity, uh, power, um, contentment, um, achievement, recognition. You know, you will look for some state. That's what you connect with Thai beaches or Tibetan monasteries or uh, doing the Ironman or, you know, you will connect some expectation of a state behind that. And if you connect with that state, you realize that the place, the experience is just a symbol for you. There's no guarantee that even if you obtain that experience, it will deliver. And what you seek for may be achieved in other ways. It may be achievable right here. It may actually already be germinating in you, but you don't recognize it. You do not acknowledge. You outsource it, you know, like we've outsourced the negativity in the previous. We not just project out negative stuff, we're also projecting out goodness and positive stuff and achievements and contentment. We kind of make it appear as if it is far, far away. Thirty years later, we remember we actually had it. It was right in front of our noses. We were even basking in it, but we didn't acknowledge. You know, we were so preoccupied with planning our future that we didn't actually know we were happy, we were in love, we were safe, we were content. You know. And then we hark back and <laughs> anchor back for something that when we had it, we weren't even aware of it. You know. yeah. I guess this gives you some of the Next one is for Jaya. Ask her some difficult questions. Yeah, it was hard to, 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 
touch like any for or against. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It was just the opposite of the other, or maybe it was neutral, but it, even that didn't it, resonate it, somehow. Uh, so, but it feels like that was all a bit related to this state which I was experiencing as just kind of dullness from time to time. Uh -huh. so, did the, did, the, did the state of dullness have a have a feeling tone to it? Was, yeah, you're it describing was, it, you kind of slightly yeah. pulled a face. similar to boredom. Mm -hmm. So you know the the boredom actually it has a, it has a feeling tone of, of this is this is slightly unpleasant, and it also it, it keeps us out of or we're out of contact with what's actually arising to a certain degree. It's like she, several people have mentioned about boredom that they're surprised how unboring it is when they're practicing, even when things are unpleasant or there's not very much going on. So actually when, when the mind is kind of sharp and noticing things, that actually uh, boredom tends to kind of disappear to the periphery and I've really I've noticed that for myself I was saying to a kinshiner that um, you know monastic life is, was not much happening a lot of the time but I think I was less bored uh, ever during my time as a nun than, than I was previously or subsequently so there's a there's a um, a relationship between um, Kind of the, the the quality of attention that can that's arising in the moment, and, and whether there's boredom there or not. And I think you were noticing about how some things seem pleasant just because because they've ceased to be unpleasant, or a, a pleasant thing, um, pleasant experiences has changed, or an unpleasant experience has changed. And this is one of the ways in which pleasant and unpleasant manifest, and they manifest because of the changing nature of things. So one, one thing, a, a, an unpleasant experience will rise and it will start to fall away and then something becomes pleasant just by virtue of that change. So there's a kind of fluctuation between the one, the one and the other. <coughs> and it's not necessarily intrinsic to the experience itself. It's just uh, uh, the, the relief of, of moving so the unpleasant, diminishing actually brings the feeling of pleasantness. Do you have something to add? <laughs> I would ask her what she did just before she felt bored. <laughs> <laughs> what did you what try did to you do? do? What did you do before you felt bored? Like Jaya, I was, you know, I noticed you pulled the face when you described it, and I, cheese keep it. I thought, <laughs> I thought that that was indicative of your mood with it, yeah. and that mood will will in some way be the key to what's going on there. There's something 
that doesn't want to have this, yeah? Mm. That doesn't know what to do with it, that doesn't have a clear task and a clear job description for how to be that way. Mm. And it, it escapes you, you know? And somehow it seems you, you have to pay attention to what's happening before. That isn't yet in, in the field of vision. The thing that constellates this state has a precursor. And somehow that precursor is the interesting bit. That may be you know, within the previous mood or the previous practice, or it may be in your intentionality, or it may be an expectation that is not fulfilled, or you know, something along those lines. But it, it, it doesn't want to be touched. You know? It doesn't want to be named. It doesn't want to be pinpointed somehow. That's how it feels like when I, when I looked at your face. You, know? you have to see if any of this speaks to you. Right? Mindfulness to me. I've had I've had many years of um, attempting to be mindful, and uh, years of be, years of being sometimes mindful and sometimes unmindful. And mindfulness to me is um, having a present-centered awareness of, of what's happening, what's arising here and now, and also a, a, a non-reactive or non-judgmental awareness. Um, so uh, you know, it's it's really difficult when one's lost in reactivity to what's arising to actually uh, notice it for what it is. It's like um, I'm lost in the um, the story or the the movement of trying to get away from it or to hold on to it. And uh, so there's a, a there's a sense in which um. The mindfulness requires a, a putting down of that, what it says in the, in the suttas, desire and discontent for the world. So when mindfulness is really present, there's a, there's a sense of uh, just the present moment landing as it is without, without that moving away from or towards. And I also think that actually when that happens, there's a quality of... Um, appreciation or lightness about the present. There's actually a quality of, of friendliness towards the present that arises naturally when the, when the um, desiring and the, disc, the discontent is, is, uh, is falling away. So there's actually um, a sense of mindfulness being a, a friendly or a kindly stance towards things, which is... Uh, you know, we think of, we think of mindfulness and kindness as being two kind of separate parts of practice, but for me they really they really come together. Mindfulness is a is a it's a, it's a kind of tender, sensitive quality towards what's happening in the moment. That's a very big question, <laughs> but for me that it really particularly at the moment I'm that's the. The dimension of mindfulness that really interests me is 
mindfulness as, as kindly awareness. I think in my early practice, a lot of it was about really having a desire to know everything and to see everything with tremendous clarity and to have all the right answers. And so um, there's almost something that then from that becomes really cognitive about it. It's like I want, I want to see everything absolutely clearly and have the right definitions and somehow that mindfulness is about getting that right and knowing something right. And it's a way of... Uh, approaching experience that doesn't really fulfill the purposes of being mindful which is to actually be liberative and to find a um, peaceful kind of abiding and so um, and also that tends to to feed the tendency to want to get away from or to manipulate experience so I think as, as time's gone on, I've become much more aware of that tendency and um, more inclined to that, uh, coming out of that sense of a, a head-based focus and that mindfulness is about feeling what's here as it's arising and feeling that from um, a place of, of receptivity and appreciation even when the, the thing that's arising is something that's difficult or unpleasant, to actually um, still be receptive and, and kind of um, even, even appreciative of it in, an, in my ideal moments when I'm being mindful. <laughs> what about you? asked us both. <laughs> Yeah, I think that's very well described. It's hard to say something. You know, it's easy to talk a lot about mindfulness. Yeah, there's books being written about this, definitions being handled, and I guess, in a nutshell, it is both a willingness, a capacity, and a sustain an ongoing relationship. Yeah. A willingness to relate to something, some process, some person, some situation, a capacity to do that, and uh, an availability that continues. Yeah. So it's not just... I'm no longer interested in laser sharp introspection or so. I'm interested in relationships. I see the things that are transforming are not crystal clear pictures, you know. It's the ability to connect with something and stay in connection with something that yields both inside and that makes transformation possible. You know, a kind of idiotic example would be like the needs of a baby, you know. I don't have kids, but I know enough of babies that they... They, they don't thrive if you episodically take them up, play around with them, <laughs> cuddle them, put them down and forget them for three weeks. They don't thrive on this. You know, even if you're not so gushing, they need sustained, attuned relationship. And it's, in the long run, it's the sustained, attuned, however undramatic relationship that really is best for them. <laughs> Rather than 
you know, overwhelming outburst of affection and then forgetfulness for the next period of time. So, the same seems to hold true for a quality of mind that is capable of unraveling, offering kindly, as Jaya said, you know, a kindly presence and staying with a process that may or may not un, un, undo itself as quickly as I'd like or, or develop as sweetly as I would wish. Yeah? And my ability and my willingness to stay with this. Yeah? It's the staying quality of um, more than attention. It's a fluid attention that is kind and that is referencing to values. I think if you just press me to, I'll say one word, and it's relating, relationship. I'm willing, I am capable of, and I'm having the strength and the patience to stay in that relationship with something. My fatigue, my anger, my longing, my pain, uh, my chattering mind. You know. And I'm willing to be with that and hold it, even though, even when it differs from my expectations of how it should be. And in that, some magic happens, you know. Uh, we're all topically and episodically mindful, but the magic happens if we're actually hanging in. You know, it's like in other relationships, the magic happens if you're hanging in. You, know? you begin to actually deepen into something. You begin to become aware of contours that you weren't aware at the beginning. And you see that you start to have an influence in this simply by being there. Not by giving orders, but by being there and attending in kindly and attuned ways. Yeah. Like Jaya, I've started off with a great uh, appreciation of wisdom and clarity. And I try to be wise and clear and sharp and and if I had a choice, let it be clear and sharp rather than anything else. Yeah? If a, even if it was bad, give it to me straight and clear. Yeah? And I realized that that demand, in fact, preempted me getting in touch with some of my experience. Because some experiences are not clear and sharp. You know? Thoughts, maybe, but a body sensation is not. Or a grief is not clear and sharp. You know, it's, if I want to know something about grief or resolve that, then my insistence on it being clear and sharp already stops me actually from meeting this properly. And what I get may be frustration, headache, migraine, numbness, boredom, dullness, sleepiness, all kinds of symptoms may speak to me of me not meeting or relating to my experience. Yeah. <laughs> so I recognise that a lot of it is about me and my own internal struggle and I've um, made a lot of changes in my personal life but I feel that I'm making so many changes in my personal life that I've had to reduce everything I do in my personal life so I can cope with the sort of eight to six if I'm lucky in, in the workplace and you described surrounding yourself by people who are mindful and teachers and guides etc. 
Um, that was not always easy in a workplace where there is very where that does not exist and there's a lot of pressures and I'm having a lot of conflict about um, I'm trying to be a leader in that workplace and trying to um, exhibit behaviours. I know I'm struggling to do that all the time um, and I know that makes it worse. And the difficulty of do I get myself out, come here, beautiful place, you know, oh everything's perfect. Um, so, at what point do you step? What what point do you recognise that actually this is this is just too much? Um, so, but also knowing that all of this is a test, and it's you know, I guess it's getting that balance. So I'm interested in your thoughts of whether we can be mindful at pace, which is the, the demand in a lot of work. Well, I think it's really, that's a really good question because I think we can, especially when we, we associate practicing mindfulness with being in a, an environment, say, like this, where the situation is all very conducive and peaceful and we can operate at quite a slow pace, that we get a picture of what mindfulness is and that mindfulness depends on being able to behave in a certain way and surrounded by certain sorts of behaviour. And that can be really debilitating in a way because then we, we kind of, um, you know, set conditions for ourselves that, that we can't fulfil outside and in, in, at work or, you know, in a busy situation. So I think that's really important to recognise that you can be very speedy and very mindful. Um, I can't remember which teacher it was, but uh, one of Joseph Goldstein's teachers, he said he, he, was, he was an incredibly speedy person, but he, was always, he always seemed to be utterly present with what he was doing and mindful. So um, it's more difficult, so it's really important that, you, you know, that, that the, these sorts of opportunities or some moments that you can catch in a, in a karma situation at home, they kind of help to um, orient and stabilise the mind so that it's kind of, it, it, you're sort of um, fueling it or building, building your mindfulness muscle in a, in a helpful environment. But then, okay, so you, you're at work, what can you do? And um, to really notice that there are notice the small opportunities that there are to pay to pay attention it's like you don't need to take a 20 minute time of stepping out but uh, you're at work you're busy you're out for your run another example of being speedy the body's still here the breath is still here can you just tune in 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 moments to the body to the breath and just ground yourself and maybe, um, for example, uh, having, having certain things that you set as reminders at work, times of like the phone rings and you take a breath, you remember. Mindfulness is, is kind of remembering the intention to be present and that's what goes out of the window when we're preoccupied by needing to relate to these people and get this done and that done. But um, to have things that remind you to just... Not even you don't even have to stop what you're doing to be because your breath is not going to stop even when when things are happening um, and your body's still there and that you just connect with that which is again why this cultivating this 
rebalancing of awareness towards the embodied experience of the moment rather than actually what's happening in the realm of thought is really is really important yeah does that help some <laughs> mm-hmm. which um, daily duration of meditation do you recommend when you have <laughs> He spends the first, that's what happens to me, the first 15 minutes taking in what happened during the day at work. And when it's over, after 20 minutes, thinking, but it was just like, you know, cleaning the hard drive, and that's all. I mean, mm-hmm. Is it, yes, how, how long would you recommend for it to be beneficial? <laughs> well, the first question is that you know how much how much time do you have really? The, the most important thing I think is is regularity rather than the amount of time that you have. And if you set yourself an unrealistic you know expectation that I have to spend X amount of time doing it, and it, and then that's that's too much of a challenge for your life, then you actually will end up not doing it at all and that's really really counterproductive. But it sounds like if you spend 20 minutes and then the first 15 minutes is, is just like downloading from work and recuperating from work, you've got five minutes at the end that where something else is happening by implication. So that's, that's a productive thing to reflect on. And then also actually what would happen if you didn't clean your hard drive? is really the bottom line. You may, you may want other things to happen in addition to cleaning the hard drive, but actually cleaning the hard drive is really, really important. So. <laughs> yeah, same. Absolutely. I completely subscribe every word. <laughs> I'm interested in the prevalence of samadhi and accessibility of samadhi is it really something that pretty much you have to do long long retreats or be a monk or a nun or is it something that in ordinary western lay life where you watch telly and drink beer and work and is is accessible on a daily basis well, watching less telly and drinking less beer <laughs> helps <laughs> but they are part of Mainstream life. So, I mean, I'm to get well, mainstream life is not really famous for having made a lot of awakened people. <laughs> so, I guess there is some, you know, there are some strategic decisions you will need to make if if you wish to stay mainstreamed. In the likelihood of mainstream producing awakened beings seems slim by my account. Okay. You know? um, if you are interested in waking up in some form. This may make you marginal. <laughs> yeah. So like, this is a simple, you know. And you you will have to take that risk. You will have to evaluate whether waking up is important enough to feel marginalized. Yeah. Uh, history of meditation teaching seems to say that it's it's never going to be you know a craze like football. Yeah. <laughs> So while I don't think there's ever been as many meditators now, and it's it's remarkably more popular than I would have anticipated when I started with it um, in the early 80s, but 
we will probably going to stay marginal. Yeah. So, so art hinges on a couple of things. It hinges on health. It hinges on <coughs> talent. It hinges on time. It hinges on skill. It hinges on your willingness to apply and learn what makes the mind still. Now, all of, all of these can have dramatic variables. Yeah? There's people who have natural samadhi. I've <coughs> been, several times in my life I've been absolutely struck by particularly women who came to practice late in life with real children and, you know, were complaining about having big glowing nimitas, right? Whenever they closed their eyes and what they're supposed to do about this. You know, who clearly had profound states of stillness without having received much formal training. And I've attributed that very clearly to a profound training in letting go. Yeah. So, so one of the things that helps the development of stillness is obviously a skillful object of attention, a skillful focus of attention. Now there, there are attitudinal virtues that you that tremendously help. One of them is loving kindness, friendliness, metta. It is no secret that people who have good samadhi generally have capability of accessing a paradigm of loving empathy, both for themselves and for others. Um, you know, a sourly acerbic mind is never going to be still. Yeah? So that's why you have to pacify a mind rather than control the mind to become. Um, Still, you have to sweeten a mind so that it becomes malleable in some ways. Then, m most people I know need to practice and put in hours with samadhi. You know, cutting back on complexity. That's why samadhi, uh, profound samadhi practice is not a highly realistic practice if you're a, living a beer-drinking, TV-watching, uh, elsewhere-busy life in a highly complex environment. Um, Samadhi is something that hinges on your ability to have a fairly controlled environment and <clears throat> having uh, tools and time to stabilize and the health and the energy to do that. Yeah. If we're speaking of deep states of absorption, yeah. and just because you're a monk or a nun, you don't necessarily get that. In fact, the majority of monks and nuns don't get that. Just to be clear, yeah. I wouldn't... <laughs> I wouldn't be so sure that monastic life intrinsically privileges you to that. It gives you better access to teachings and it gives you better access to conditions in which that is possible. Whether you have the inner resources to make best use of those possible is another case. Yeah. That seems to also hinge on your capacity to understand what you need. And monasteries are not always full of people who know what they need. Monasteries are full of very normal people with high aspirations. That's why monasteries are there for people who have aspirations. It doesn't mean they're necessarily more gifted or even better at these things. But they are, in many ways, very one-pointed. They have to give make gestures of renunciation and they have an official legitimation to dedicate themselves to contemplative practices, which you may not have. You know, your wife may think, have other plans for you than this. <laughs> or your kids, or your employer. So, 
That's the advantage of monasteries. Um, if you are interested in this, consider seeking out counsel of people whom you think have such experiences, who are making an emphasis in the teaching of such aspects of meditation, and um, consider going to places where you have enough time and enough supportive conditions to, to deepen that aspect. I tend to think that many Western meditation scenes underestimate the value and the power of stillness. I do not think that you need to have uh, the greatest degree of stillness for growth to be possible or even for receiving benefits from stillness practice. But I do know that it is immensely reassuring to know that this mind can become still, even if it is engaging in busyness and complexity afterwards. Yeah, just to remember that it has the capacity to do that and to know the tools to take it from the busyness it is in now to a more quiet place is immensely useful. And. Um, there is a great degree of joy to be found in this. You know, I make it sound like control is needed, renunciation is needed, letting go is needed, loving kindness is needed. You know, most of us would probably say we're not having enough of this, or we're not very gifted in this, that we come to meditate because we feel we don't have this. So now you're demanding we have to have this before you can make sense of this. Um, it's not as clear cut as that. Um, the mind is capable of stillness. Let me say something about Ajahn Chah, it's this beautiful image. He says, you don't need to teach a buffalo how to eat grass. If it's a genuine buffalo, he knows how to eat grass. You need to make sure that it's eating the grass at the right place. In other words, on your meadow rather than on neighbor's fence. You make sure that your buffalo goes to the place where it can graze for a day and you let it there and it knows how to do that. You don't need to teach your mind how to become still. What you need to teach your mind is take it away from things that make it crazy, give him the right type of grazing, yeah. give it the right pasture, so give it the um, effective objects for practice, give him a tool that is useful for the mind to become still. Once it has the right tool, it will know how to do it. Yeah. I found that very reassuring, thinking I don't have to teach my Swiss cows how to eat grass, yeah, because they know how to do that. But I, I can understand, you need to drive them up to the right pasture. Yeah. And the task is making sure that they don't eat neighbors' flowers, <laughs> they don't get lost in the gorge, they, you know, the task of the meditator is making sure that that buffalo is on the right pasture and finding out what is that and how to get there and where it can get lost is part of samatha practice. So if you have time, if you have the energy, um, do retreats. Study people who teach this in, in detail um, and find spaces in your life where you can dedicate to stilling the mind. 
Your mind will know differing degrees of stillness already. You know? you will, I'm sure you, you have experiences where you find yourself suddenly focused or the distractions don't seem to be strong or time seems to fly by. Yeah. We all have experiences of samadhi. You can have that when ironing, rock climbing, or in doing gardening. You know, you can. We we do not associate this with forms of samadhi, but <coughs> as soon as you focus your mind on something reasonably simple, uh, you can be profoundly still on this, and you get clear signs of samadhi. You know, spaciousness, calming of bodily functions. Um, pleasant feeling tone, um, bliss, energy flowing, um, an ease in being, coherency in your experience of being in one piece, a sense of wholeness, all these would be symptoms of samadhi. And from a little bit of samadhi to deep samadhi is only a gradual step. It's not a structural difference. It's it's just a gradual step. Gradual stepping step. So I hope this is a kind of answer. Okay. Yeah. Good. Thank you. Thank you for hanging in. We would like to end with some chanting. <laughs>